This is an ABC podcast. Looking back in history, it's now clear that there were many reasons for the collapse of the Soviet Union. And one of them, now broadly acknowledged, was a fall in the oil price in the 1980s. With diminishing fiscal reserves, the leadership of the USSR struggled to modernise while attempting to keep the vast Soviet empire intact. Workers and shoppers quickly surrounded the security forces. The man who has taken over is Vice President Gennady Yednaev. Access to energy resources and the control of energy resources have long played a geopolitical role in shaping our world. And they'll do so again as we move beyond fossil fuels to a future of renewable energy. But if you thought that the transition was all going to be smooth, think again. There will be positives, of course, particularly for the environment. But for many nations, there will also be substantial difficulties. Hello, welcome to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. You know, energy has been a source of geopolitical conflict, not necessarily because energy is imbued with sort of special qualities that make it ripe for geopolitical conflict other than scarcity. Sarah Ladislaw, Director of the Energy and National Security Program at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in the US. Scarcity and the inability to move energy to places where it's needed is a strategic leverage point, and therefore it is geopolitical. There is an aspect of a lower carbon energy future that tends to democratize that a little bit, right? I mean, every country has access to a wider array of resources if a wider array of resources are able to be produced in economical ways. So by dropping the cost of wind and solar and, and hydro and nuclear and other technologies, we're going to be able to you know, make sure that different communities have access to a wider array of resources. That in itself should help alleviate some geopolitical tension. However, you know, as we're seeing, it'll, it'll largely be a more electrified future. It'll largely be a future that is more reliant on technologies that need critical and strategic minerals. Those have to be traded through global supply chains. Anything that's traded through global supply chains are going to be subject to potential uh, geopolitical conflict. So I don't think it's a world free of geopolitical conflict. I think it'll just manifest itself in some fairly different ways. For some time, I've been making the arguments that the speed of the energy transition is being significantly underestimated by what I call the energy establishment, the IEA, OPEC secretariat, the big oil companies. And it's going to happen, I think, a lot faster than they realise. And of course, the faster it happens, the greater the disruption is going to be. Professor Paul Stevens, a distinguished fellow at Chatham House in London. He predicts dire consequences for many countries in the Middle East and North Africa, nations that have long been referred to as petrostates. They've been talking about diversification away from oil since 1973, and most of it has just been hot air and rhetoric. They've done very little to actually do the transition. They're now again talking about it perhaps a bit more seriously, but there are serious barriers for them to diversify. Such as? 
Well, the main problem is if you're going to diversify an oil-dependent economy, you need a dynamic, active private sector to do it. And in most of the Middle East and North African countries, the ruling elites have grabbed all the best deals for themselves. And so the private sector is squeezed out. So, for example, in Saudi Arabia, you have a very active, dynamic private sector, but most of the things they do are done outside of Saudi Arabia. And the reason for this is because there's a lack of property rights within the kingdom. So private investors are dubious about putting their money in if there is no rule of law. Is it at a stage where it is likely that those nations, those oil nations, will end up becoming failed states? that they simply won't be able to take care of their populations or meet the the demands of their populations if they haven't diversified? Yeah, I think this is an important point. In these countries, there is a sort of social contract. We will pay you to be quiet. We will buy off your discontent. And the problem is that As the energy transition proceeds, obviously the demand for their oil is going to decline, and so revenues will decline, and so they'll be less able to buy off that opposition. If you add to that the observation that the causes of the Arab Spring, the civil discontent that emerged in Tunisia in 2011 and spread to most of the region, the reasons for that, corruption and inefficiency, have not really been addressed. And so there is a serious danger that there will be considerable domestic unrest in these countries. And if there's domestic unrest in those countries, as you point out, that's bad news for Europe and other parts of the world, isn't it? I mean, we are likely to see economic migrants, aren't we, on a scale that perhaps we haven't seen to date? Yeah, that is a major concern, that you're going to get a mass movement of the nearest richer areas, which in the case of the Middle East and North Africa, of course, is Europe. And so this could be extremely disruptive. And of course, let's not forget, you've got a large population in these regions themselves, and they will start to suffer as the economies go down that tube. The sort of people that know about these things are already expressing concern and pointing out the dangers. And amongst the populations, there is growing discontent because they don't have jobs and they've been promised jobs. And so you're beginning to see sort of rumblings and discontent. Paul Stevens. Now, the North African nation that looks particularly vulnerable is Nigeria, according to Michael Clare from Hampshire College. Professor Clare is a visiting fellow at the Arms Control Association in Washington, D.C. Well, Nigeria is a key country in Africa. It's the most populous nation in sub-Saharan Africa and has one of the largest economies, the second largest economy after South Africa. So it's played a very important role. It has also played an important role in supporting peacekeeping operations in other parts of Africa. But as the oil production in Nigeria, as that no longer provides a source of income for the Nigerian state, their ability to carry out these kind of activities is going to diminish. And Nigeria itself is going to be torn apart by internal conflict. And the Nigerian government is going to be much more focused on its internal problems. It will have much less capacity to engage in peacekeeping and other activities throughout Africa. And in many cases, 
I think you're going to see that exploited by radical factions and militant factions and extremist factions. Boko Haram has taken advantage of the continuing weakness of the Nigerian state, its inability to meet the needs of its population, particularly in the far north where Boko Haram has been especially strong. The government has proved terribly ineffective in sustaining development and helping the local population. And this has made it possible for Boko Haram to thrive. And you see that throughout Nigeria, in the south and the Delta region, you see insurrectionary behavior in the southeast as well. Now, that creates chaos within Nigeria, but this also leads to that kind of unrest and conflict has has spillover effects into adjoining countries. So North Africa and the Middle East are regions that will struggle to break their fossil fuel addiction and rebuild their economies. And then there's Russia. It's named Yekaterina and is a super modern domestic drilling rig. Now, Russia stands out for one simple reason. Though it's no longer a superpower, it maintains a massive nuclear arsenal. Russia is highly dependent on oil and natural gas exports to finance the state, to finance the Kremlin and the Russian military. And Russia has been using oil money over the past decade or so, Vladimir Putin, to finance a kind of aggressive policy intervention in Ukraine and Crimea, involvement in in Syria. All of this has been made possible by the oil income that the Russian state receives. And Putin has been very reluctant, very resistant to alter the economy, to move in a different direction, to de-petroleumize his economy. To move in that direction, he's been very resistant to do that because it would mean other forces would rise and his power would be diluted. So he's perpetuated this petrostate, but this cannot last forever. And we see signs of unrest in Russia. And I think this will continue to grow. That is, dissent, dissatisfaction in Russia will grow as oil income declines and the ability of the Putin state to meet all of the requirements of the population and foreign policy decline. And so for the United States and China, what happens in Russia as a result of a transition away from oil will be very significant. My guess is that sooner or later, a new regime is going to have to come into power in Russia and Will it be a Putin-like regime or something very different will make a big difference to the future of world politics? Because the collapse of Russia carries with it that added danger that we're talking about the second biggest nuclear state in the world at the moment. So nuclear weapons are at play in such a scenario, aren't they? Absolutely, yes. You're quite right to bring that up. Russia is a nuclear power and a a large military power that's deeply involved in the affairs of neighboring states in the former Soviet republics. And this militarism is closely aligned, as I say, with the petropolitics of the Russian state. So 
Will Putin try to perpetuate his regime through militarism? That could lead to military clashes with the United States and NATO would be exceedingly dangerous because, as you say, it's a nuclear-armed power. Or could we see a transition somehow to a post-petroleum economy? I think that could not occur in Russia without a deep convulsion in that country. And who knows what form that convulsion will take. It could lead to the breakup of the state and a civil war with military implications. Professor Michael Clare from Hampshire College in the US. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. And today on the program, we're focused on how geopolitics will play out as the global transition into a post-fossil fuel world begins to accelerate. Of course, no discussion about future geopolitical developments can afford to ignore the increasing rivalry between the economic giants China and the United States. China currently has a massive advantage in that it's the world's largest maker and supplier of renewable energy technology. But that dominance may not last, says Dr. Sarah Ladislaw. Before, you know, there was a relative level of comfortability with the idea that, well, you know, maybe the United States will help create these technologies and, you know, China will drive down the cost of manufacturing them. And that's how we're going to achieve some of our global decarbonization goals. And I would say for the last 10 or 15 years, that's really been the way that people have seen it. I think we're in a new place now where there isn't as much trust in the global trading system and for globalization writ large. Every country is asking itself, you know, has the incorporation of China into the global economy yielded more benefit or harm for my economy? And and that's what a lot of countries are going through. Case in point being, you know, India saying that they want to be able to not only produce more of their own solar PV, but rely less explicitly on China for those resources or the United States saying that we're very concerned about a number of different countries, China included, in providing software for our bulk electric power system. These are things that we didn't hear much about several years ago, and, and we're certainly hearing more about now. So there, there is this sort of creeping concern that maybe over-reliance on one country is not good for both the economic and security and trade aspects of the low-carbon transition. And looking at the Biden administration, how have they changed the dynamics here? You know, it's really interesting because I think the Biden administration has sort of fully embedded in itself this idea that the United States, one, needs to take on climate change as a top tier priority, a top tier economic priority, a top tier social priority, a top tier national security priority. And very much, if you look at the way in which the Biden administration has laid out their plan for climate change, it is very much about creating domestic opportunity out of decarbonization of the energy sector. They have unionized labor provisions. They have domestic investment in in domestic infrastructure. They have manufacturing provisions. They talk about creating jobs. And so this more deliberate industrial economic strategy as it's related to clean energy in the United States is something that I think that they will be be focused on. So in that way, it's right in step with the trends that we've been seeing. I will say, though, you know, a lot of people in and around the Biden administration and the president himself 
were some of the champions of this idea that the United States and China need to work together productively on climate. And I think that there is a lot of hope that in otherwise fractious relationship that the U.S. and China will still be able to continue to work together on climate change and to be able to make progress. And I think the Chinese, in announcing their net zero by 2060 plan, or at least aspiration is far from a plan uh, as of yet, they have also signaled that they're willing to take that leadership role. So I do think that their posture towards China will be collaborative in that sense. But that doesn't mean that, you know, countries are still aren't going to be looking out for their interests in the context of that global cooperation. So I think it'll certainly shape that relationship in ways that were a bit different from the Obama administration. Could we see new geopolitical tensions over clean energy in the future? For example, transboundary rivers being used for hydropower impacting on the water supply of countries downstream. We're already starting to see some of that kind of tension. Are we likely to see other forms of tension, geopolitical tension as a result of of this energy transition? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I have a very hard time as an analyst looking at the kind of economic transformation that is required if you think about global decarbonization by 2050, or you just think about the kinds of compounding risks and impacts that we've experienced from climate change and its impacts. I'm not sure whether we'll always call it climate change when we see that geopolitical tension, but I think it's definitely going to be a defining feature of how we think about geopolitics for many decades to come. In some places, you're going to have populations that welcome this change open-heartedly, without difficulty. But in other places, it's going to create divisions in the population. And some extremists, populists, may take advantage of that. My own personal sense is that the impacts of climate change, combined with the impacts of covid are going to make people much more sober-minded when they look at the future and what they want their governments to do. I think they're going to be much more inclined to look to their governments to act in a prudent, mindful fashion in protecting their basic needs of health above all and to protect the climate against future disasters. That would be my best hope looking forward, but there will be resistance to that in places. The transition itself will be extremely disruptive. However, once the transition is over, once fossil fuels have been pushed out of the energy mix, then the world will become a lot more peaceful. There will be much less reason to actually have conflict. I mean, we'll find other reasons to kill each other. I've no doubt of that whatsoever, but it won't be because of energy. How much trade do you see happening in renewable energy between countries? I mean, obviously, it would depend on proximity, I would imagine. But how much how much trade do you see occurring? Or do you think most renewable energy will be generated for domestic use? I suspect the majority will be for domestic use and not for trade. But there is the point, of course, that renewables can be intermittent. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow, sometimes the sun doesn't shine, which means that you need to have a degree of backup. Now, if you're in a, say, European situation, the backup is represented by other countries that can produce electricity where the sun does shine and the wind does blow. 
And so you're going to get that sort of trade, but it's going to be on a fairly small scale and fairly intermittent as well, I suspect. And in Australia, I mean, I've heard this numerous times from various people, and I heard it just the other day from a senior environmentalist that we should in Australia be moving from fossil fuels to become what this person described as a a renewable energy powerhouse. But it doesn't work that way, does it? That's a misunderstanding. That's almost an assumption that you trade the value you've got in fossil fuels for a renewable energy at some stage, but that's not an equation that works, is it? No, it isn't, because, I mean, particularly Australia is so far from anywhere that the idea that Australia will start to export electricity is not very realistic. Having said that, however, there is the possibility that if you use the electricity to produce energy-intensive goods, then you can export those goods. But the idea that Australia is going to become a major exporter of electricity directly is just not realistic. Now, dispelling that idea of a simple like-for-like swap when it comes to energy transition is also a theme picked up by Asher Miller, the executive director of the Post Carbon Institute in the United States. He believes we underestimate the degree to which fossil fuels have become an everyday part of our lives. And changing that, moving to a world dominated by renewable energy technologies, he says, will therefore necessitate a significant change in the way we live. Oil is a factor in virtually every aspect of modern life, including the food system. And it's just very difficult to think about replacing it. For example, aviation or shipping, there are major challenges in substitution in terms of those sectors of the economy. So in my view, we will be living without fossil fuels in the future, that we don't have a choice in the matter. But it will mean that we will be living differently. It will not be a one-to-one replacement. In terms of the actual amount of energy that will be generated by renewables, will we have the same amount of energy available or is it likely to decrease once we've moved to renewables? My sense is that we will be using less energy in the future than we're currently using. And that will be for a couple of reasons. One is there are efficiency gains when you electrify. And that's towards the positive. And I think if we really focus on efficiency and in particular think about conservation of energy, we can save a lot in terms of waste in the system. There is a lot of waste in the energy system, almost in every sector. So there are advantages there. We'll get more, in a sense, bang for the buck. But we have been on a trajectory for over a century of continuing to grow effectively year over year, with exception of economic downturns year over year, growing our energy demand. And I don't see that continuing in a future that's fully powered by renewable energy. What are the key transition sectors as you see it? Transport is a big one, obviously. How do we transport not only ourselves, but our goods? The food system is a major one. We're currently consuming something like 12 calories of fossil fuels for every calorie of food that we produce in the industrial agricultural system. So there are some major, major changes that have to go in there. But in a sense, all form of consumer products, right, have embodied fossil fuel energy built into them, whether it's because they're petroleum-based, fossil fuel-based products, plastics and other types of things, or just in the manufacturing, you know, there's a lot of fossil fuel use, not just in terms of running a manufacturing plant, but as direct inputs into the manufacturing of steel and concrete and and other things that we rely on. So you think about the building sector, there's going to be major implications there as well. So I hate to say this, but pretty much every aspect of modern life is going to have to really rethink how it gets done. 
consumption is really the point of our economies at the moment, isn't it? Our economies are designed around increasing consumption. That has to change. Absolutely. It's consumption and growth. And those two things have gone hand in hand. We have created a system that is functionally dependent upon the continuing growth in in consumption and and generally in in gross domestic product and and economic activity. And, you know, 70% or so of the U.S. economy, for example, has been consumer-based. It's interesting to think now about what's changed with the pandemic and how there's been positives and, and negatives in terms of thinking about our relationship with energy and carbon emissions, for example. One of the things that actually has not declined has been consumption to whatever degree that the U.S. economy is rebounding, is dependent upon people consuming things. And it's actually been one of the quote-unquote rosy areas of the economy in the last however many months. In any form of change, there are always you know, economic winners and losers, as we know. With this energy transition, who's likely to come out on top and who is likely to struggle? And how do we address that? The first thing is, I think that we have to recognize when we think of it from kind of a global perspective and even you know, locally, there have been a lot of people who have been major losers. The people who have been really disadvantaged by the energy system that we've created. People that have been in frontline communities of pollution, whose communities remain energy poor. And there's great disparities in inequality when it comes to thinking about energy access and all of the economic benefits that energy affords to society. So I think the first thing for us is to think about access to energy and who benefits from the transition through a justice lens. And that means thinking about communities that have been left behind from the fossil fuel revolution and the ones that have suffered the most. So we have this situation now where with the energy transition, we also, we already have frontline communities who are on the front line of the extraction of some of the rare earth minerals that we need for you know, solar panels and, and batteries and other things. And, and we need to be very conscious and conscientious, I think, about that. When done in a way where we're focusing on ownership of energy and distributed energy, there are a lot of people that could benefit. The concern that I have is that in kind of the market-based system that we have right now, and I'll use the United States in particular as an example, where it's really up to the market with a lot of deregulation to think about who the winners and losers are and the flow of capital, that it tends to consolidate into the hands of the very few. And I think this energy transition provides us an opportunity to address that inequity that exists within the system on a lot of different levels and try to think about having a much more even playing field when it comes to who has not only access to energy, but who profits from that energy transition. There's a lot of concern about energy poverty globally. Something like a third of the world's population doesn't have access to electricity. And some people have argued to say, well, you need to get them access to electricity, and you do that by giving them fossil fuels. But I think this is a fundamental mistake. The advantage of renewables is that they are small scale and decentralized. So you don't need to have large scale grids. And the argument reminds me of the argument 15, 20 years ago about telephone networks in Africa. And people were saying you'll never get a good telephone network in Africa because it's too big and you've got to lay all those wires. It's too expensive. Well, now, of course, you've got an excellent telephone network in Africa because the technology has jumped. And so you can use 
mobile phones and wireless technology. In the same way, you can make the argument that the poor, the energy poor, who are largely rural, can be met by renewables, which are decentralized. So you don't need to invest huge amounts in power grids all over the place. And that decentralization, that actually builds in an enormous amount of flexibility, doesn't it, to be able to adapt to different circumstances, but, you know, for instance, growth in population. Oh, absolutely. And of course, the other advantage is that you're not import dependence. It's going to be local, domestic for the most part. The geopolitics involved in transitioning to a fossil-free future. We heard today from Professors Paul Stevens and Michael Clare, as well as Sarah Ladislaw and Asher Miller. My thanks to colleague and co-producer Karen Savanovitz. You've been listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.